I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Jonah, this time to Jonah chapter 2. We considered from Jonah chapter 1 his commission, and now we come in chapter 2 to ponder his prayer. <clears throat> Jonah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I'll back up to verse <coughs> I'll back up to verse 17 of chapter 1. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish 3 days and 3 nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish and said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I cried for help from the depth of Sheol. Thou didst hear my voice, for thou hast cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, I have been expelled from thy sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. But thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. While I was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to thee into thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving that which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah up onto the dry land. <clears throat> we occasionally hear the expression, goes something like this, that perception is reality. Well, this is partly true. Each one of us conducts our lives according to our perception of the world around us and what we believe to be true. But our perception is not always accurate. In fact, often it is skewed. And this is particularly the case when we contemplate God's dealings with us, especially during seasons of painful discipline. We may draw wrong and even blasphemous conclusions about God during such times, but only as we patiently entrust our souls to the God of the Bible do we begin to understand that God is actually afflicting us for our good. In painful seasons, we exegete in our own experience the truth that all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. 
And we must as readily believe the promise that to those who have been trained by it, that is, by discipline from the hand of God, that afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. This is reality, brothers and sisters. Even when our feelings may say otherwise. You see, our chastening God always has our best interests in mind. Even when He's dealing with us severely for our sin, He chastens us for our good. Now, however Jonah viewed God before entering the ship there in Joppa, we know that he learned this lesson in the belly of a fish. Before he attempted to ditch God and to dodge his duty, but God found him out. In fact, he throttled his prodigal son with a violent storm. He unsettled him with a barrage of pointed questions and convicting accusations from the ship captain and from the sailors. And then the Lord committed him to a watery grave, but not to die, but rather to terrorize him in the waves and in the fish's belly, all for Jonah's good and for his own glory. The blessed promise that God will never leave us or forsake us comes with this warning. You cannot run away from God without running into Him. Deep in a salty sanctuary, in the belly of an appointed fish, Jonah had an appointment to keep with God in prayer. Now, as we look at Jonah's prayer, we're going to consider two points, one brief, one longer, and then come to a few words of concluding application. Notice first, as we consider Jonah's prayer, that Jonah's prayer revealed a change of heart. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now, brethren, I suggest to you that it was not until this point that Jonah prayed in the book of Jonah. Earlier, the pagan captain of the ship awakened Jonah from his sinful slumber and urged him to seek the face of his God, since their heathen deities were powerless to silence the storm and to save their lives. And so he chastises the sleeping prophet. Sometimes we are chastened, we're chastised by unbelieving men and women. The, the, mouth, the mouth of a mere man and of a sinful man may speak the very words of God to us. And so it was through the mouth of this ship captain who knew not the living God. How is it that you're sleeping? Get up. Call on your God, perhaps your God will be concerned about us so that we will not perish. Our gods are availing us nothing. We're praying. We're thumbing our beads. We're doing whatever ritual we think might gain the attention of God. And the winds are only howling louder. The seas are higher. Maybe your God 
will hear and will answer and will help. Well, there's no indication at all in chapter 1 that Jonah heeded the captain's command. And I suggest that the reason for Jonah's prayerlessness, it's not hard to discover. We know this in our own experience, that prayer is a foreign activity to those who are not walking closely with God. When we're walking closely with God, we breathe the atmosphere of prayer. When we're not walking closely with God, prayer is an, it's hard to do. It's something we dislike. We run from it. And so it was with Jonah. You see, if prayer is not keeping us from sin, sin will be keeping us from prayer. Unconfessed sin, you see, bloodies the conscience, and a bloodied conscience stifles prayer. You say, well, I just can't pray, Pastor Steve. Let me ask you, do you have a bloodied conscience from unconfessed, unrepented of sin? It chokes us. It won't allow us to pray. God has a righteous controversy with us. We need to confess our sins, and then we'll begin to breathe the air of intercession. God doesn't want us to pray formalistic prayers. He wants us to pray genuine prayers that come from a blood-washed conscience out of a mouth of a man void of offense before God and before men. Formalistic prayer is dangerous, brothers and sisters. To get worked up emotionally when our hearts are dead toward God, and to be mouthing things that are on the other side of our experience? That's to harden our hearts, not to soften them. The prodigal prophet couldn't pray. Why? Because his heart was not right with God. But God would soon have severe dealings with Jonah. To correct this issue, he would put Jonah upon his knees. Brethren, sometimes our spiritual condition is so desperate that God must cast us down before we begin to look up. Only by His gracious work in us do we begin seeking Him who is seeking us. So Jonah's prayer reveals a change in heart. Secondly, Jonah's prayer exhibits the struggle between sense and faith. There's an interplay, an interchange between how he sensed things, his reality, his perceived reality, and his real reality, which should have been grounded in faith. And he comes back, he goes from unbelief to faith, and from doubt to trust, back and forth throughout Jonah chapter 9 in his prayer. Jonah's prayer gives us a peek into his heart, a heart not unlike our own, if we're God's true children. And this, his prayer here, it, it highlights the struggle that we face between our perception of affliction and of our faith in the God who's afflicting us. And we find here that perception is often not reality. Jonah's desperation drove him to prayer. God put him in desperate straits, and that desperation drove him to God.
His knowledge of the Old Testament, especially the Psalms, framed the language of his prayer. And so it is with a mature believer who is familiar with the Bible. Experience sometimes is the best exegete of the Word of God, especially the Psalms, which are really cardiphonia. It's the voice of the heart, the heart of David and Asaph and the sons of Korah and Solomon and Moses and maybe others. Jonah's prayer borrows many expressions and breathes the spirit of the man after God's own heart in his trust and in his trials and his struggles and in his faith, back and forth as we read the scriptures, especially the Psalms, and that comes together here beautifully in Jonah's prayer. That Jonah borrows from David and other psalmists reminds us, brethren, that we are not alone in our trials. Sometimes we think that other people have never faced what we're facing and feeling what we're feeling. That's not true. It's never true to say that no one has ever experienced our kind of trial. Maybe not the particular circumstances in its details, but they've experienced our trial. What saith the Apostle Paul? No trial has overtaken you, but what? Such as is common to man. But God is faithful. I suggest here a practical application. The better acquainted we are with our Bible, with the trials of God's covenant people, and God's chastening love and faithfulness, the more fitly we will be able to express our hearts before God in prayer. And in fact, as we pray, knowing the experiences of our brethren, we know that we're not alone. In fact, Jesus has put his spirit within us. Sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought. And the spirit groans deep within us. He puts words to our jagged thoughts. And he presents it before the Lord in a meaningful way. Indeed, we have one like us, perfected, who prayed often, seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living, to make intercession for us. And note, too, that our prayers need not be lengthy or ornate to be heard. The curt cry of a sinking Peter, Lord, save me! It gained the ear to move the hand of Jesus. Our prayers are not heard for their length or their eloquence, but for their sincere dependence upon the only God who can save us. So note with me the instructive interplay between sense and faith between disabling doubt and triumphant trust, between Jonah's perception and God's reality in this prayer. Notice four points. First of all, 
the struggle with a sense of utter distress. Verse 2. Sense. We see the sense in these words. Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the stomach of the fish. And he said, I called out of my distress to the Lord. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. I was knocking on the door of the grave, he says. Things couldn't get any worse than they are. Remember that when Jonah abandoned his call to go to Nineveh, and he boarded the ship in Joppa for Spain, he couldn't get far enough away from God in his own mind. God gave him his desire and then sent leanness into his soul. And brethren, in God's dealings with us, he must at times make things bitter in order to make us better. In the belly of the fish, God preserves Jonah's life while making it unbearable for him. Nothing less would have affected Jonah's repentance. But we see in the, in the fish that Jonah does an about-face. Before he was running from God, and now he is calling out upon, uh, calling out to his God. He believed that his end had surely come. Seeing his watery grave about to swallow him alive, thinking himself utterly without hope and without God in this world, a terrorized Jonah, he cries out to the Lord his God. Before he was prayerless, now Jonah is all prayer. It is here that we behold the revival of Jonah's faith. On the ship, Jonah openly testified that Jehovah is creator. He's a creator of the heaven and the earth, and the sea and the dry land. He testified that much truth, but here in the belly of the fish, he cries out to Jehovah, not his creator, but his redeemer. Lord, this is your ocean, and this is your fish. Have gracious dealings with me in the water and inside of, of this monster. His crisis by the hand of God led him to express, notice we saw his sense, notice now his faith. And he answered me, thou didst hear my voice. Jonah knew he was heard by God. The spirit testified with his spirit that he's a child of God and he's praying and God is hearing and that's confirmed in Jonah's heart. When he was running from God, if he prayed at all, he mouthed formalistic prayers. And now he's made contact with God. When all seemed lost, Jonah cried out to the only one who could save him. He cried out to the one who cast him into the sea, who dragged him beneath the waves that engulfed him, and who opened the mouth of the sea monster to swallow him. He prayed to this God. The God who opened the sea to consume Jonah opened his ears to his pleading. Jonah's cries were heard by the only one he knew who could save him from death. Verse 3. 
You see, the prodigal prophet believed that his God, a chastening God who wields a terrible rod, hears his people's prayers when they're uttered in faith. And he answered me, thou didst hear my voice. We see here that a true Christian struggling under the chastening rod does not give up his interest in his covenant God. Brethren, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. And this is the faith that prevails under the chastening hand of God. So we saw his struggle with a sense of utter distress in verse 2. Notice in verses 3 and 4 the struggle with a sense of divine abandonment. Divine abandonment. Sense says, For thou hadst cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All thy breakers and billows passed over me. So I said, this is Jonah's conclusion. This is what his reality was. I have been expelled from thy sight. The same one who knew Psalm 139, that God is with every, he's everywhere in the world, thought God is not here. I'm in a God-forsaken place. And I suggest to you that Jonah acknowledges that God is just in dealing with him so severely. He knew that ultimately the Lord, not the sailors, committed him to the waves. That it was his God who buried him in the water and dashed him about in the deep. But Jonah grievously erred when he concluded that this God had forever cast him out of his sight. Brethren, fear of divine abandonment is hell for the child of God. He wants to be close to God, not far from God. Jonah wanted to be far from God, and now, in his mind, God is far from him. And such may seem to be the case under severe discipline. Now, I suspect that a bad conscience may have contributed to Jonah's fears that God had abandoned him. He had run from God, and now he feels God has run from him. I've got what I deserve. I'm now paying the piper, and the chickens have come home to roost. And the devil's accusations may well have exacerbated Jonah's fears. You see... He hates God's people, and he wants us to turn against the Lord. He who is the the father of lies and a murderer from the beginning would have Jonah believe that his hope for redemption and rescue lay buried at the bottom of the sea. God is gone from me. He's forever left me. Such is Jonah's despair. This is hell for Jonah. And bless God for a child of God. This is as close as close to hell as we're ever going to get. But it's hell for us here. 
and we think it's going to lead to hell for us there. David had these words, struggling similarly. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of the Jordan. When we're in severe trial, we look back, we, mem we remember better days when we were better people. And the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the sound of thy waterfalls, all thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. And John is echoing this in his prayer. Earlier, he had foolishly attempted to flee from God. And he may now have think that God had granted him his wish, casting him utterly out of his sight forever. Oh, there's an application for us, dear people. Be careful what you wish for. Be careful to stray out of God's reality into the one of your own manufacture. God may grant you a bitter taste of your desire. And what may seem at one time sweet to your evil heart, God will make bitter in your belly. Repent of such dangerous folly. If you don't, you may find yourself forever abandoned by God to your lust. God gave a petulant Israel their desire. And what did he do? He sent leanness into their souls. We remember the good old days back in Egypt. We had leeks and garlics and watermelons and all the meat that we could eat. Give us flesh to eat. And he gave them quail. And as they ate that meat, while it was still being masticated in their mouths, he sent a plague among them. Be careful what you wish for. So that's Jonah's sense. Notice his faith at the end of verse 4. Nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. Behold here Jonah's triumphant deduction in this word, nevertheless. Oh, God has abandoned me, but nevertheless, I will look again toward thy holy temple. You see, the penitent prophet refuses, refuses to nurse his doubts and to feed his fears. Indeed, he echoes the faith of David in Psalm 18. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple and my cry for help before him came into his ears. Jonah's crying out to the God whose special presence is manifested in the ark above the cherub, between the cherubim over the mercy seat and God hears him, and he's convinced that he has heard him, and he will look again to thy holy temple, not just, as it were, from the fish trying to orient himself toward the temple, but he will look one day in the temple toward God. God's not done with me yet. He's dealing with me severely. But I shall once again see the temple. 
You see, the eye of sin saw only a watery grave in the stomach of a giant fish, while the eye of faith beheld God in His temple. What Jonah anticipated by faith, he believed he would see one day with his own eyes. And notice that it is the special presence of God that Jonah longed to be in. He wanted to be with God's people in His temple. He was running away before. Now in his heart, he's running toward the temple. You see, Jonas nevertheless expresses his triumphant faith. He, like elderly Abraham, hoped against hope when all seemed impossible to the eye of sense. But I suggest that Jonah had less to encourage his faith than even the believing patriarch did. Abraham had God's promise to ground his hope. Jonah had no such promise that he would survive this ordeal. He had only reliance upon God's gracious and righteous character, but for Jonah that was enough. It grounded his hope, and brethren, so it shall be for us. When uncertain about the outcome of any trial in our lives, let us say, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Is it not a gracious God that I serve? Is not judgment his strange work? Will he not finish the work that he's begun within us? Brethren, we're reminded that God afflicts us that he might draw us. He may remove our comforting sense of His presence to make us seek Him with holy desperation. He wants to hear us say, when all about us is dark, and when we feel utterly abandoned, nevertheless I will look toward Thy holy temple. Our hope is in the Lord, and our highest happiness is found in His special presence. And brethren, that's what makes heaven, heaven. Meeting with God's people in His new covenant temple each Lord's day is a foretaste of that great blessing. Psalm 63, verses 1 and 2. David anticipates that. It's when he was in the wilderness of Judah that he cried out to God, O God, Thou art my God. I shall seek Thee earnestly. My soul thirsts for Thee. My flesh yearns for Thee in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Thus I have beheld Thee in the sanctuary to see Thy power and Thy glory. Notice, thirdly, we've seen First of all, the struggle with a sense of utter distress and of divine abandonment. Notice, thirdly, the struggle with a sense of impending doom. Verse 5. Water encompassed me to the point of death. The great deep engulfed me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. I descended to the roots of the mountains. The earth with its bars was around me forever. How pitiful was Jonah's condition. Cast down to the bottom of the sea, hopelessly entangled with seaweed. It seemed to Jonah that his end had come. 
Drowning is a, is a terrifying experience under any circumstances. How much more in Jonah's? Compounding his terrors was a keen sense of God's displeasure. Lost at sea was the epitaph that Jonah thought would have been written upon his grave marker if his body would ever be found. How dreadful must have been Jonah's thoughts, heard by none but the God who knows our thoughts, in fact, the God who will catch our last breath. But Jonah hoped for the dawning of a better day, therefore we see his faith. But thou hast brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Brethren, notice that Jonah's Experience His situation hadn't improved yet, but his outlook had, and radically so. Faith, which is the gift of God, however faltering at times, is inextinguishable, no matter how grievous the trial. Faith can speak of future events as if they were past. Jonah did, but thou hast brought up my life from the pit. He says this in the belly of a fish. He hasn't seen the outside yet. Indeed, such faith in God's people speaks similarly and even more gloriously. What did Paul say in the 8th of, of Romans? Whom he justified, past tense. These he also glorified, past tense. It hasn't happened yet, but Paul speaks as if it had. It's a done deal in the mind of God even though it isn't in the experience of God's people. Alive now, in this life, in the church militant, we're still struggling. We're justified, but we're not yet glorified. But the church triumphant, it's the spirits of just men made perfect in heaven are saying, Amen, Paul! We know of what you speak. We've experienced it. And so will they one day. Jonah languishing in the belly of the fish speaks of his resurrection as if it had already happened. That's faith. Faith overcomes all obstacles. Why? Because it is the work of God. And as the work of God, Jesus is the glorious object of our faith. And we can say looking ahead as surely as we can say looking back that Jesus is our life because He lives, we live. Because He is our shepherd and Savior, we may conf confidently affirm, no matter how painful the trial we may face under the shadow of death, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And with an imprisoned apostle, we can say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And notice finally, the struggle with a sense of spiritual exhaustion. Verses 7 through 9. Sense speaks this way. While I was fainting away, 
God sends trials to wither our flesh, to strip us of all self-reliance, to demolish all trust in man, that we might find our strength only in Christ, and Christ to be our all in all. Indeed, a desperate sense of our weakness is God's voice calling us to turn from our utter insufficiency to His all-sufficiency, that we may say with Asaph, when he came to his senses after being test, uh, test, tempted to apostasy by envying the wicked, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So we agree with the words of the hymn writer, I heard my Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. So that we may confess with another, destitute, despised, forsaken, thou from hence my all shall be. So faith says, I remembered the Lord. Before he was trying to forget the Lord. God had dealings with him. Now he's remembering the Lord. And my prayer came to thee, into thy holy temple. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness, but I will sacrifice to thee with the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Before being cast into the sea, Jonah tried to put God out of his mind. Now he can't get God out of his mind. Now buried in the depths and at the door of death, God renews his spirit, a prayer in his prodigal. And never sure to draw a fresh breath again, Jonah's heart, heart pants after renewed fellowship with the Lord. You see, Jonah has ceased his running. No, he's captive to God here. Instead, his awakened heart runs by faith to God, seeking his special presence in the temple. And here God meets with him between the ribs of a fish. That's his temple. He looks forward to being out of the one and into the other. And brethren, such is the case with all repentant runaways. A change of heart always results in a change of life. Grace leads the penitent prodigal to sing, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Penitential grace inspires prayer. It urges hope in receiving further mercies from the Lord. Indeed, it is a promise of further mercy. Matthew Henry writes... Then when 
Jonah was in a hopeful way of deliverance, being preserved alive by miracle, a plain indication that he was reserved for further mercy. Then he prayed. An apprehension of God's good will to us, notwithstanding our offenses, gives us boldness of access to Him and opens the lips in prayer which were closed with a sense of guilt and dread of wrath. Though Jonah was still inside the fish, the stormy and the angry clouds have cleared and he sees the bright countenance of God, a rainbow over the throne. Jonah witnessed the inability of the sailors' vain idols to deliver them from the storm. But I suggest to you that Jonah was also confronted with his own vain idol, his inflated opinion of himself, and his desire to do his own will rather than God's will ditching his duty to go to Nineveh? You see, Jonah was learning that by running from the Lord, that he had forsaken the Lord's mercy. Yet God's mercy proved more powerful than Jonah's folly. God rescued the prodigal from his foolishness. He learned what we read in Psalm 68, verse 20. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. God's delivering mercy filled Jonah's soul with praise. It ignited a desire to serve the Savior with vigor and to worship Him with gladness and to serve Him with gratefulness, to lift His heart in prayer, to pay His vows to the Lord, to testify to God's people of God's benefits toward Him. His mouth had been shut to prayer, now it's open to prayer and to praise. What a change has taken place in Jonah. John read it this morning. Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render to the Lord for all His benefits toward me? I shall lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. I shall pay my vows to the Lord. Oh, may it be in the presence of all His people. I don't want to keep these things to myself. I want to stand up and have a pulpit to proclaim the goodness and mercy of God. Isaac Watts' paraphrase reads, What shall I render to my God for all his kindness shown? My feet shall visit thine abode, my songs address thy throne. But I suggest to you that had Jonah not followed through in paying his vow to the Lord, his sacrifice of thanksgiving in the temple would have proved empty and worse, hypocritical. And what was Jonah's vow to Jehovah? What was it? Well, I suspect his vow was to obey his original command to go to Nineveh and to preach. You see, God impressed upon Jonah's soul a crucial fact of the Christian life. The grace that saves us, saves us to serve the Lord who saved us. 
And it wasn't until Jonah repented of his rebellion and vowed to obediently follow the Lord that he was restored to God's service. Indeed, until that happens, we're, we're not fit for service. We can't serve God in a posture of disobedience. We have to have a clear, blood-washed conscience toward God and before men before we can serve God acceptably in Christ. Jonah learned by a severe trial to follow in the footsteps of him who cried out to his God in his greatest hour of trial, not my will, but thine be done. By learning this lesson, Jonah became a type of him who, although he was a son, sinless and perfectly obedient, learned obedience from the things that he suffered. So what does that say to us by way of concluding application? What are some lessons taught in the crucible of affliction? Our attitude toward our affliction forecasts whether it will be effectual or not. Our attitude toward our affliction forecasts whether it will be effectual or not. Let me ask you, how about you? How about me? Do we see our need for God's chastening? Or do we think we're somehow sinless and we don't need God to deal with us. We have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Him who learned obedience through the things that He suffered. Jesus didn't go from a state of disobedience to obedience, but from untested obedience to perfected obedience. We, we're in a state of disobedience. If the Lord Jesus needed testing and trials, how much more so do we? Do we see God as the author of our afflictions? Or we just say, I'm running, you know, I'm a little bit down on my luck. No, do we see God's hand in this? That we're suffering? Do we understand God's purposes in our afflictions that therefore are good? Are we being humbled by them or are we kicking against them? Do we understand that they must be painful in order to be effectual? That it's not just a little smile and a tap on the diapers that we need. We need something more than that. Hugh Martin, in his exposition of Jonah writes, the soul, that, or the soul cannot be alive to its relation to God without feeling its afflictions to be intolerable when regarded as proofs of his indignation. We, we live in a Christian culture in which God is all smiles, all strokes and no strikes, no frowns. That's not the God with whom we have to do. He judged our sins in Jesus for our justification, but we'll receive spankings for our sanctification. Let 
We must feel the pain. And God will make sure that we do. Brethren, if we sense nothing of God's righteous fatherly anger toward us in our discipline, we will not feel either the pain of the lash nor the love that wields the rod. If we aren't humbled, we can't be helped. Where there is no pain, there will be no gain. One man observes, Mr. Fairbairn, he says, There is a class of professing Christians in whom the heaviest afflictions are found to work no spiritual good. The flesh bruised, but still the spirit not sanctified. Earthly delights cut off with a stroke, yet no springs of heavenly consolation opened up. A valley of Baca, that is weeping, without its wells of living water. A wilderness with no manna from above or Canaan in prospect. A sorrow that works either death or leads with delusive hope to a new refuge of lies. A sad case, truly. When the medicine of God's righteous discipline makes itself known only in its bitterness or tends but to deepen the wound intended to its cure. But on the other hand, when the life of grace has really gained a footing in the soul, another and happier result is sure to flow from the visitation of severe distress. Earnest thought, a spirit of serious reflection is awakened. The voice of conscience makes itself heard in the chambers of the inner man. And if any delusive charm has been entertaining the heart, the spell is broken. Truth and reason regain their rightful influence. The soul lives again to God. Our attitude toward our affliction forecasts whether it will be effectual or not. Secondly, God will not remove our afflictions until we have learned their lessons. Understand that God's afflictions are never harsher, nor do they last longer than needed to bring us to repentance. Like many of us, Jonah was a slow learner. Fact is, our resistance to God's chastening may prolong it. If it doesn't prolong it, he lets us go. I, I wonder if we were truly Christians to begin with. We want God to remove his hand before the work of repentance is done. That's why when I was a kid, sometimes I'd get spanked. I'd start crying before I felt the rod. But my spirit was yet unbroken. Maybe even at the end of the spanking, it was still unbroken. I wasn't sweetly submissive to my parents. I might have tried to put on a smile, but inside I said, I will not have this parent to rule over me. You see, Jonah needed to be tossed by the storm. He needed to be submerged in the sea. And then finally he needed a fish to swallow him, to bring him to repentance, to worship, to renewed obedience. You see, before that his conscience was dull. 
He should have felt the light lash of, of the, the captain's exhortation to pray to his God, but he didn't. So God didn't still the storm. He just made it worse. And then he's thrown into the sea. And then he's bounced around on the bottom and he's swallowed by a fish. And therefore, because his conscience was dull, God's chastening had to be sharp. Let me ask you, are you experiencing God's chastening right now? Let me be more particular. Are you clinging to some sin? Excusing some unrighteousness? Refusing submission to God in some area of your life? Are you resisting Him? If you do not repent, severe measures are in store. Or maybe you think that God is just an ogre. He's being too hard on you. Well, all of us, when we think that way, we need a reality check because our perception is wrong. A truly repentant spirit will kiss the rod and clear God of all charges of abuse. So the Bible teaches, you have Ezra come home to Jerusalem from Babylon. What did he see? Dusty ruins. And what did he say in his prayer after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and our great guilt? Since thou, our God, has requited us less than our iniquities deserve. They might have thought more. No, the Spirit said less. What did Jeremiah say as he looked at the smoking rubble before him, years before Ezra prayed? Why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? Let us say with David, Psalm 119, verse 67, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. Thirdly and finally, God sends afflictions not only to chasten us for sin, but also to grow our faith. You see, chastening is, is not the end. That's a means to an end. It's a bitter means to a sweet end. Faith, like a muscle, grows by stretching. And our faith is stretched as we sense God's love in His striking hand. You see, faith grows by trusting the Lord when He seems to be against us, when in fact He is for us. What did the writer of the Hebrews say? He disciplines us for our good that we may share His holiness. May we keep that ever in mind when God is dealing with us, sometimes severely, but always in love. Let's pray. Our Father, let us see the Jonah in our own heart. Indeed, we're cut from the same bolt of cloth as he was. 
Our sins may be a bit different, but they're ultimately the same. They're rebellion against you and your will. Might we be taught when you discipline us to kiss the rod? Might that discipline have its perfect work in us that we might be reproved and corrected? That we might be trained in righteousness? Lord, we we bless you, you who love us too much to allow us to go off into our sins, but you will conform us by your grace and sometimes through discipline to the blessed image of your Son. Let us see beyond the means to the end, beyond, beyond the discipline to the perfection in grace. And Lord, which one of us cannot say how far we have yet to go. We thank you from what we've come to to where we are now, but we honestly look ahead and we say there has to be many mid-course corrections made in me before I'm ready to arrive in glory. And even then, we thank you for Christ, whose mediation, whose blood, whose work of his spirit within us assures us that we are pardoned, we're being purified, and we're being prepared for heaven. And for any here who cannot say that, we pray that you would work in their heart repentance. You'd cause them to see that they are running from you, and you would turn their feet toward the cross, and you would enable them to run to Jesus, to believe upon him, and to be saved. For we pray this in his name. Amen.